go back to my car and I start thumbing through my phone. I've got a list of illustrations and funny stories. And I start like a junkie looking through my phone. I gotta find something. Because and it, that lasted maybe two minutes, to be honest. And then I realized, wait a second. What's going on in my heart? I don't, I'm not looking at next Wednesday as an opportunity to glorify you, God. I'm looking at it as an opportunity to glorify me. And so I'm hearing Ben, and I'm thinking, how am I going to look good next to this guy? And I just, I recognize that's what's going on in my heart. So I, had to, I just stopped and put my phone away and said, God, I'm, instead of focusing on your glory, I want to use your glory for me, for my glory. I, and, and I'm making this about me. Forgive me. And what's so great about the God that we worship is we get to confess our sin to a God who's already forgiven it. And he's not ready to backhand me, like, oh, yeah, that's right, you jerk, you don't belong, leave. You know, it's, it's, it's more of a, you're forgiven. And he reveals my sin so he can clean it out. And so I got to confess it right there and then just say, you know what, God, would you help me to make this about you? And since that night, immediately after, you know, Ben preached, I'm in my car, and I've been free just to concentrate on the passage rather than concentrate on what can this be about me. And I started actually enjoying this passage, even though I'm still not looking forward to every aspect of preaching it, because it's difficult. But looking at this and taking it seriously, it, this, this is speaking right to us. And I say this all because we, no matter what aspect of God is highlighted in this, we worship a God who is very severe about sin and very amazingly gracious in his love and his forgiveness. And we encounter all of who he is. And I feel like I encountered all of who he was just in the car right after listening um, last week. But we're going to look at this message. I'm, I mentioned it. It's, we're at Revelation chapter 2. We're looking at what... Christ said to the church at Thyatira, chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. I'm going to read like a verse at a time and comment, but one little interesting thing is this is the longest letter to the different churches, but it's the smallest church. It's kind of interesting. A real simple thing. I mean, it, one thing that kind of strikes me with that is that you know, small churches matter to Jesus. The, the, the big mega churches are not like more important. I mean, this is, this is evidence God has. He cares about small churches. He cares about small Christians. He's, he, he, it's just interesting how much time he invests with this church in this letter. And so knowing that this is, one of the small, this is the smallest church that is addressed, let's hear what he has to say. Verse 18 and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, <clears throat> the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Right away, this intro. The words of the Son of God. Do you know where else the Son of God appears in Revelation? That's right. It doesn't appear anywhere else. This is the only place. He usually refers to him, he refers to himself earlier as the son of man. But you know the difference between saying the son of God and the son of man is the son of man is, hey, I'm one of you. You know, it's kind of coming down. The son of God, though, is the king. The way he intro, just intros this, he says, eyes like, a flame, like flames of fire. It's like I see everything. I search minds and I search hearts. Burnished bronze, for, you know, feet like burnt, burnished bronze. Bronze is heavy. 
The thing, the image that comes to my mind is, you know, when, when, the, when the boys are, you know, playing and I hear somebody you know, like Charlie falls and he starts crying, I, I, I come into the room with a certain posture, you know? It's, I come to comfort. But when we put him down for bed at like 7.30 and it's 9.30 and I still hear them laughing and jumping around, I come with thunder. I stomp, burnished bronze, you know? And I see you, I hear you, my eyes are flames of fire. And I, it's, 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 it's not Ryan now, it's sir, you know? That's the tone that's being set right from the beginning is this is serious. What he's got to say is, is serious, it's heavy. But before we look at actually what he says, I didn't appreciate this until I understood what was going on in Thyatira, just the background. So be, let's take a quick tour of Thyatira. So here, here's Thyatira, and that's today. It looked hopefully a little different back then. It was a, a blue-collar town. It was actually, at the time that this was written, it was about 400 years old. Alexander the Great you know, formed it as a military garrison so that when basically, when people were coming in to attack Pergamum, they would have to pass through Thyatira. And they would, it's so, it didn't exist as a city for itself, it existed to protect more important cities. And because of its location, it started off being a military base, there was still a military base there, but it was right in the, in the middle of a trade route. And it kind of gave it a, a place of prominence where though they were small, they began to grow and it, it grew in its importance. It prospered. And also it was in a valley in its particular location. The water in that valley was really, really dense in minerals. And it was the only place anywhere nearby that you could create red and purple dye. So that's why purple was such a royal you know, color because it was an expensive thing. I mean, you don't just get a purple shirt. That's like for... That red and purple were expensive commodities only produced in Thyatira. And also the pottery and the bronze and the silversmiths. They were, it was just one of these places where the marketplace was really strong. That's what sort of put them on the map. But when you look at like, just here's the next slide here. You look at these different places and if this were modern day, it would be like Jesus writing the church to, uh, he, church to New York, L.A., Chicago, and Lubbock. And... You know, he's like, what doesn't fit here? Thyatira is Lubbock. You don't go there for your honeymoon. You don't really, I mean, but it's important. <laughs> Sorry, Lubbock, but it fits. So here's the thing. Thyatira, I keep on, I keep on feeling like I'm going to mispronounce it. You know, it's weird. Thyatira. Um, but Thyatira is, a, a, like I mentioned, it was a blue-collar town, and if you live there, you're either in the army or you traded. You, you, you built and traded, and, and if you did one of those two things, then you had to be a member of a guild. Now, a guild is like a labor union. If you, you know, if you, wanna, if you wanna be a tent maker, you're gonna be in a tent maker's guild, and the guilds back then, it's like you said, you had to be in it in order to be a tent maker, but imagine combining a labor union and a frat house. What, what would happen? Each guild had a patron god that they worshipped. So the army had the patron god of Apollo. And every once in a while, every guild would have festivals being held every once in a while. And this is where it turns into a frat house. Because they would go to the temple of Apollo, who they called the son of God. And they would go and they'd worship the son of God, Apollo, implore 
as they eat meat sacrificed to idols, to Apollo, they would, they would implore, hey, Apollo, show us favor, make us rich and prosper us, you know, or, you know, whatever trade they're involved in, and they would get very, very drunk. And then, later on in the night, they would bring in male and female slaves and have their way with them sexually. There was definitely, like, sex trafficking happening. It was just total, it was, it was, it got, it had, I can't imagine how ugly this got. And this was normal. This, here's the thing, if you wanted to work, you needed to be in a guild. And if you decided, I'm not gonna show up for the festival, then you probably angered Apollo and you were fired. You're out. So do you sense that this is, there's a tension just in the, this is the context that this letter's being written. So and Jesus is coming like, I get the sense right away. He's like, I'm bigger than these other gods. You don't need to fear Apollo. You need to fear me. And so, what is he going to say? <clears throat> Verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. I mean, we're off to a great start. Th- this church is, they, they are loving they're serving each other. They're, they're showing up for each other. They're enduring under the hardships of living in Thyatira, and they're doing it with faithfulness. They're, they're, they're trying to remain faithful to God. They're, being, they're enduring hardship with patience. And here's the thing that strikes me is their latter works were greater than their first. They're growing. I mean, they're off to a great start. You know, but the image that comes to my mind is imagine going to the doctor and like you want a checkup and, and he says, hey, man, your heart rate, you've been running, haven't you? Uh, good blood pressure, your BMI, you're not overweight, you're, you're doing great. But, but don't leave, there's a, there's a mass of cells near your pancreas, I think it's cancerous. That's where, this is where this is going. There's a cancer in Thyatira and that's, what he's going to point out in this next verse. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I'm going to spend a lot of time on this verse, so if you don't get nervous if you're tracking with your watches here, but there's, there's a lot to see here. So, this church is like an apple with the worm on the inside. It looks good. It looks good from a distance. It looks good even up close, but there's a rottenness on the inside. And uh, in order to understand that, you have to know who Jezebel is. Who's Jezebel? She's, she's an Old Testament figure, just like last week we had Balaam and the Nicolaitans. I mean, Balaam was an Old Testament figure. Jezebel was 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings chapter 16. She was the daughter of the king of Sidon, her name means Jezebel, Baal, B-A-A-L. She's like, it was a pagan, pagan king and a pagan worshiper. She married uh, King Ahab of Israel, the northern tribe. And she basic, ba- basically, she came in and introduced the worship of false gods. And she was one of those powerful, manipulative people who, she had more power than the king. Like, the, she brought in this false worship that involved a very, very perverted form of worship that might sound familiar from if you're listening like five minutes ago. Because 
the way people worshiped Baal was you bring in these priests, you go to a high mountain, and you bring temple prostitutes up to that mountain, and worshipers would go up, sex with the prostitutes, and provoke the excitement of Baal, who would and then inseminate the clouds and cause rain. That's the way that worship worked. Okay, that's, forgive me, this, this sounds judgmental, but that's messed up, <laughs> right? And what happens when, when there's a lot of sexual promiscuity and all that stuff happening is a lot of babies, right? What do you do with all those like, unplanned pregnancies? Well, no problem. You set up an Asherah pole and sacrifice your child to the god of Molech. That solves that problem. Where, where does this come from? This is, this is exactly what happens when you take the world's sexual ethic. It just starts, Jesus has a very s- simple sexual ethic. He created sex as this gift to be put in the fireplace of, of marriage, of a committed union between a man and a woman. And outside, once you take the fire outside of that fireplace, it just starts doing damage. We just had a fire pretty, like a, two months ago. Our garage removed from our house, burnt down. I have a new respect for fire. I mean, it melted stuff I didn't know could melt. But back to this. Um, this, this is a gift. God's not prude about sex. He just knows where it works. But when you take it out of the context, it, it does all sorts of stuff. It becomes sexual immorality. The, the phrase, the words sexual immorality is to be translated as fornication which means any sex outside the context, sexuality outside of the context of heterosexual marriage. It's a very broad term. And this is what Jezebel's teaching is leading to sexual immorality here. And it is doing its damage. This woman, though, back in 1 Kings, she, is, she not only stopped there, she killed and per- she persecuted and killed all the faithful that she could get her hands on, especially the priests and the prophets. So, is Jezebel back now, you know, in, in New Testament times? I don't think that she was a literal person. Some people think she might be, but I think that's like, who names their kid Hitler, you know? Who named their kid Balaam, you know? I think it's as she represents teaching, a, a teaching or maybe a prophetess that was referred to here, and they just gave her a different name because that's what she was like. But whatever it is, it represents someone who's controlling, manipulative, and out to destroy you. And that's the important part. This teaching, what is being introduced, had a single purpose, and it was to destroy. It was to steal, kill, and destroy. So the problem, though, is it, that the, is it that the Thyatiran Christians were believing it? No. Is that they were tolerating it? I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Compare that to what Ben talked about last week in, the, in Pergamum. You, you have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Verse 15, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Like, you're buying this stuff and you're believing it, but here in this case, they're just tolerating it. It's, this is scary, but tolerating this teaching is sort of like tolerating cancer. It's like inviting a spy into the White House. If you know what you're doing, you don't do that, but there's a real danger. So what's, what is the danger of toleration? This is the inevitable way it goes. To- toleration the way it's defined here is it leads to compromise. 
It always leads to compromise. Soon an expected embrace, though. The compromise leads to an embrace, and then that embrace it leads to idolatry and immorality and everything else. And it just always leads that way. Now, to be intolerant today, is that not the biggest sin you can commit? But we're the church, we're supposed to be countercultural. So this is speaking right to the tension of, of where we live. But to, is, is, what's the difference between tolerance and, and love? Because our culture says it's loving to be tolerant. Tolerant, tolerance has come to mean unconditional approval. That's not love. To, to be unconditionally approving, like if, if my seven-year-old son decides to start like drinking whiskey heavily, I love him. I'm not going to unconditionally approve whiskey. In, a, in my seven-year-old especially, all right? <laughs> I'm not going about whiskey might be, you know, whatever, right? You know I'm. I'm not demonizing whiskey, all right? Okay, that's not love. All right. Look at who Jesus hung out with. Who did he hang out with? Go ahead and say it. Prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors, drunkards. I mean, these are, they called him a friend of these people. Do you think he unconditionally approved of everything they're doing? No, of course not. Do you think they felt loved? Absolutely. You know who comes to my mind, I can't help, is the homosexual community. You know, I think that the most of their experience, I'm, I, I've talked to a few people, but I know that this just makes too much sense. I think the standard experience for people in, in the homosexual community is either one of two extremes, total acceptance, absolute embrace in the name of love, or I'm keeping you at arm's distance at best or just outright hating you in the name of truth. One of those two extremes. It's not truth without love or love without truth. It's truth and love. You can be, you can be compassionate and have convictions, but the thing is it's gonna cost you a lot. It, there's gonna be points where it really costs you, but tolerance and love, we get these things Mixed up, our culture really mixes it up. And I just want to ask you, are you a tolerant Christian? This is the boundary we need to have in mind. It's a sin for Christians to be more tolerant than Christ. It is a sin for us as Christians to be more tolerant than Christ. The moment we go there, we're in, we're in a very dangerous place. You can disagree with someone and love them. And I think sometimes to disagree with someone is to love them. And you can stand on the truth, be uncompromising, and there can be a warmth about you. There's a book I just now come in. It's uh, by Rosaria Butterfield, I think is her name. She, she was a professor, lesbian. She got befriended by a, a Presbyterian pastor. He invited her over to dinner and her, his family. And he just, he immediately, he made her vegan dishes. Like, and just dialogued with her. Loving respects. And it was the kind of, it's a, it's a great book, great story. Because you get to see what it looks like just, anyway. But this is, that's, a, that's a side note. But if you are intrigued and you want to hear more, ask me about that book. I'll, I'll give, give you the name of it. It's amazing. So, it's a sin for Christians to be more tolerant than Christ. Is your life like, more conformed to the culture or to Christ? That's another question I, I need to ask myself. Because 
you know, I think um, we're just we're supposed to be countercultural. And what this is, this is where this is going is not a popular idea. Part of the reason I was feeling nervous about this. But here's the thing is, I, I'm just the mailman right now. Jesus wrote the letter. It's not my job to, to tinker with it, to water it down, or to alter the language. In fact, to go right along with my nervousness in, in light of you know, following Ben is the other side of that, is I need to be more afraid of offending Jesus than offending you. This is his message. We need to hear it. And so ask yourself, are you taking your notes from the culture or, for, or from Christ? And let me go back to Jezebel and clarify this teaching that was being taught because it was happening specifically in ways I don't know if I necessarily understand, but there's eternal truths that come out of this. And I want to investigate some of these characteristics of Jezebel's doctrine. Doctrine is another word for teaching. What are some, some of the things that, that might apply today? Jezebel's teaching is anything that teaches that something evil can be good. That's something you don't tolerate. Hey, Imagine the tension that the Christians felt. Hey, you can, you don't have to make a choice between faithfulness to God and your job. You can have both. You can, go, you can get in these festivals and, and worship with everybody else. No need to choose. It's, it's actually, it's worship. It's teaching that something's evil, it can be good. Sexual immorality. Hey, if it feels good, then it can't be bad. And you can find people who are gonna go and and stamp it as divine approval that, hey, this is, this is good. Can, seeking after material possessions is a sign of God's blessing, and uh, cults will multiply the requirements of salvation and reject grace and call it good. Things that take evil and call it good. Ro the, Romans uh, 131 says that even though these people understand God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's Jezebel doctrine, calling evil good. Here's the second thing, teaching that always scratches itching ears. If we never had messages that offended you, beware. Because we're probably not preaching the word of God. Second Timothy 4, uh, Paul says, talks about these people who will not endure sound teaching. They don't wanna hear anything uncomfortable, but rather, having itching ears, they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This is what's hard about the church in a consumer culture, is there's always gonna be somebody who's gonna tell you what you wanna hear. And if it's always what you wanna hear, they're scratching your itching ears. That's, and, and again, consider the pressure you don't want to lose your job, but there's the positive pressure. These festivals are fun. It's nice to have come, someone come and say, hey, it's fine. That's scratching itching ears. And then third, <clears throat> teaching that doesn't conform to the word of God. That's the ultimate one. You know, um, Jeremiah 23, he, he talks about these people, these false prophets. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord, they're saying what they want to say. It goes on. They continually, they say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. That they're taking their authority from something else. They're not conforming to the word of God. So here's another application. Give scripture the final say in your life. And resolve to give scripture the final say. It, this isn't easy. Don't give your political party the final say. 
Don't give some pastor the final say or a professor you sit under or a podcast or anything else that starts with P. <clears throat> it really is a coincidence. That that's a pastor's trick is alliteration, and that was just accidental. You use the word of God, and you remain correctable. Like, I have my views, and, you know, let's say, take, I'm not going to go into this, but say, like, take my views on Calvinism. I've got my views. Am I more, am I going to be more loyal to Calvinism or to the word of God? Well, as long as I think that Calvinism conforms to the word of God, I'm going to be loyal to the word of God. It just might, I think, this most closely captures it, or whatever it might be. I mean, and you plug, fill in, don't take our words for it. Get back to the word of God. It's your measuring stick. It's your filter. It's what you're supposed to analyze and understand the world through. And here's the thing is, there are plenty of things in this book that are very inconvenient for us, aren't there? I mean, if you're not a Christian, if you're, or just, maybe you're just visiting, I hope this isn't land on, on you too heavy. Uh, I'm not trying to make this difficult. This is how Jesus has made life difficult for us <laughs> as Christians, and it's good. I need it. Like, I need to make life difficult for my son and my, my, my daughters, my sons. There's, we, as a father, I, I know better for them. And my father knows better for me. But these are some things that when it says in, say, Matthew 5, you shall not look at a woman with lust in your heart. That's a very inconvenient thing for me. It doesn't come very naturally for me. And I would like for that to not be there. Because I get, like, I... I bump into that one a lot, and it convicts me, and it exposes me, and there are times where I'll be uh, sitting in a movie, and, and Brandy and I will have to walk out. I'm sure I would love Game of Thrones, but I can't watch it. I'm, I know what it would do from, to my heart, to my soul. This is an inconvenient teaching, but I need it, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna bow down to it. Now, what if I'm struggling with it? Let's say I'm struggling with lust, and I struggle with lust, okay? So let's say I'm struggling actively, and I'm kind of on a losing, losing ground here. Am I tolerating Jezebel's teaching? The difference between tolerance and struggling is big, and you need to hear this. To tolerate is to say, hey, I'm open-minded. Yeah, you're teaching us, I, I embrace that. To struggle is to say, the word of God is true, and I'm not following it. And this discord happens where there's this love-hate relationship, there's a tension. I can't enjoy my sin like I used to because I believe the word of God is true. And it convicts and corrects me and beats me around sometimes when my sinful heart wants to go other directions. But if I start tolerating other teachings, I've now untethered myself from truth and I'm free to wander. Really interesting, when she says in verse 20, um, go to the next slide, because she says she seduces your servants. Is that right? She seduces my servants. That word seduces means uh, it's planio. It's like the word for planets. And what, what's so interesting about this is back then you look at the stars and all the stars were fixed in the sky except one star that seemed to move. They called those planets, you know, wandering stars. And in the book of Jude, they call false prophets wandering stars from whom it is reserved blackness, darkness forever. I mean, this is scary stuff because the moment you start tolerating, you're, you're attaching yourself to something that's wandering away from life. So, 
Last analogy I'll say about this. This is just straight from Tim Keller's book, Reason for God. He says, if you decide to pick and choose what you like from the Bible and believe that, you have now turned God into a Stepford God. How many of you have ever heard of the Stepford Wives? Seven of you? Um, <laughs> it's about these guys, uh, these guys like rich like suburban people, and they, they take their wives and inject a computer chip into their wives and make them perfect wives. Yes, dear type of women. And they're like, they're robots. And they're, they're happy and cheerful and they never complain. And that's the, it's, it's, there's a commentary in the movie, you know. And in it, though, the, the, the commentary is, if you want a perfect wife, if you want a person who does your every whim, then you can't have a relationship. You have a robot. You don't have a relationship. Because when you get married, you're going to marry someone who's going to contradict you, who's going to point out things you don't want to hear, who's going to have a different agenda at times. And that's what a relationship looks like. So if you want a relationship with God, you have to allow him to contradict you. If you choose to cut and paste the Bible the way that suits you, you've created a step for God, and you don't have a relationship with him. You've got a God of your own creating. So... We bow our knee to what he says. We bow our hearts. We submit ourselves to what he says. And this is an extremely important thing that we as a culture don't really get. So are you more tolerant than Christ? And are you giving scripture the final authority? Do you see what I meant when I said I'm gonna spend a lot of time on verse 20? At this rate, we'll get out at like, you know, two in the morning. So let me speed up here because what's God's posture toward these false teachers, these agitators. He says in verse 22, I gave her time, Jezebel, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. He's patient, right? Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the children, uh, all, I mean, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. He basically says, hey, I'm coming to judge. I'm being patient right now that you might repent, but I'm coming to judge. Jezebel, in the Old Testament, she was judged pretty severely. She was thrown out of a window from a tower, trampled on by horses and eaten by dogs. It's like God's way of saying, I spit on your grave. You know, it, it really, it was like, judgment in the most humiliating and, and horrible way, but he says, in this context, she wants a bed, I'll give her a bed, a sick bed, a bed of pestilence, a bed of death, and those who wanna sleep with her can make their bed with her. And it, the, the phrase literally is, I will kill her children with death. Who are her children? Those who follow her teaching. Like in Acts 5, he killed Ananias and Sapphira, to be an example, he wants to, this, he's, he wants to, he's gonna make an example out of him here. And this is uncomfortable because we tend to think of God as nice, <laughs> patient, loving, gentle, and, you know? I mean, Jesus had perfect, perfect feathered hair, you know? He, he was, this is Jesus talking. This isn't angry Old Testament God the Father, it's Jesus, and he's saying he's gonna kill them with death, with pestilence, and the thing is, here's my point with all this. Don't mistake God's patience for lenience. He's severe with sin. He's just given us time to repent. 
but you, you can relate to God in one of two ways. He's either your judge or he's your savior. And if you're gonna hold on to teaching that's gonna help you hold on to your sin, he's gonna say one of two things to you. Either he's gonna say, okay, your will be done. Have your way and you will make your bet. Or he's gonna say, my will be done. And he's gonna move in your life in mercy and rescue you from, from the slavery of sin. But don't mistake, where we're living right now, God doesn't look severe. No, don't mistake his patience for lenience. Let's keep moving. Verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I think that's an ironic statement. This prophetess was probably saying, here are the deep things of God. Go to the guilds, enjoy. No, it's the deep things of Satan here. Side note, God does not have secret levels of knowledge for you to discover. He's given you everything you need to know in, in his word, plain meaning. That's what cults do. You want the truth? You know, well, let's come a little deeper and a little deeper and discover the secrets. There's not layers. So for those of you who do not hold to the teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. You're already burdened enough. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule, with them, rule them with, an, with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star, which I think is an illusion. That's, I will give him Jesus. The morning star refers to later as Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So like I said earlier, the situation in Thyatira is desperate. Either you're faithful to God or you begin to sacrifice your, your faith to keep your job. In Pergamum, the same thing was going on, except if you're faithful to God, you'll probably get killed. But the point is, is faithfulness hits us where it hurts. And I think it probably hits every one of us in different places. You might not be working in a place where you have to make a choice very often between faithfulness to God and, and career advancement. But maybe, you know, maybe you do. Maybe you have, you're in sales and you, the expectation is you take your clients out to strip clubs. That's pretty common practice, you know, for in some places, in some areas. And that, that's kind of similar to, to what was going on here, right? Maybe it's, faithfulness to God or compromising your standards when it comes to who you're gonna date or what you're gonna do the way you date, the way you move forward in this relationship. Do you want the relationship more than you want Jesus or do you want Jesus more than you want the relationship? Do you want the, uh, the approval and the recognition more or do you want Jesus more? The, we all have the, these tensions. Do you want, uh, do you wanna throw that, I mean, I. Yeah, do you want your family's approval? I, I, there's so many examples, and you've heard these examples, but you know what it is for you. What is the biggest thing that, helps, that causes you to compete for loyalty to God? And this is the next point I want to say is we have to fight to persevere in, our, in a loving relationship with God. Persevere in loving and serving God. Where are you experiencing pressure between faithfulness to God and faithfulness to the world? And this right there requires two things, tying in where we've been. 
Perseverance requires truth and love. If you were here for Ephesus, what did they have? They had truth. They didn't hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, but they lost their first love. And here, the Thyatirans are being commended for their love, but they're letting go of truth. What are you more in danger of? Loosening your grip on truth or growing cold in your love? For me, I tend to, I'm more at a threat of growing cold in my love. I feel like I'm doing well if I'm learning something. And if I've got something like it's exciting me intellectually, then I must be doing well. And I've, it's been commented by people around me who love me that, that you're not very, just because you're smart doesn't mean you're, you're growing. You're, you're, you know stuff, but it, it doesn't line up with the way you're behaving at home or the way you're... I need to, I'm challenged by this because I know I need to remember this, this is a love relationship with my Savior. It needs to be personal. Are you more likely to read your Bible or to, to worship, you know, to study theology or to, or to worship? That could be one way. What more naturally pulls you? Then beware that you don't get too loose with the other side of it because perseverance requires both of those things. And the other thing I would say is don't let this world overshadow your vision for Christ, your vision for God. And that's going back to verse one. I mean, verse, the first verse, 18. He, he shows up and he, 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 comes, to, he comes to the Thyatirans with a, with a great entrance. He's big, he's powerful, he's awe-inspiring. And I think he was coming to overshadow a lot of other gods that were competing. My God needs to be very tangible and real to compete with the desperate need for approval that I live with. I need him to be more real, and I need to long for his approval more than I long for your approval, more than I long for, it gets even harder with my boss and my wife, two people I really respect. The, the more I know, the more I respect, the more I kind of like long for their approval, and I start to become like that junkie who's wanting that, and the truth is, he needs to be more real to me than anybody else's approval, and we all live here. We need to be captured by a vision of God. And if I can close on this note, where do you look to see this vision of God? You can look at verse 18. You can look at verse 23. He shows back up. He's powerful. But honestly, I need to look at Jesus in general. I just need to see. He, I, I need to look at him. He, he prioritized the Father, his Father, at his ultimate cost. He, he came and sacrificed everything because he prioritized God so perfectly. But then, let's get more specific. I see Jesus on the cross. That is a place where I see his power, I see his justice, I see his mercy, I see his patience, I see his love. I mean, I see his power, and he said, I could, I could blink my eyes and legions of angels would come and kick your butt. That's a translation. He was totally like a lion just being, you know, in acting like a lamb. He was this power. I, I see truth and love at the cross, right? The truth of God's justice. This is how much God hates my sin, that he had to crucify his son. And I see love. This is how much God loves me, that Jesus would die for me. The, my vision, vision of who God is gets blurry the farther away I get from the cross, but when I see my Savior dying for me, bleeding and dying for me, when I as a father can imagine sacrificing my son 
Because this is a love initiated really by the Father. The Father in love predestined us. This is not like angry Father, merciful Son. No, God loves you, but he hates sin. So can you learn to love him and hate your sin as well? Let me pray. Father, we need this message. I need this message. And I thank you because I honestly don't think I would have stopped and studied this unless Ben had asked me to preach it. To my shame, honestly. But Lord, you, you gave us this opportunity to walk through the different letters here in, 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 to the churches of Revelation and would we be teachable at every point? And if there's anything that hits us where we live, would you in your grace and mercy bring that home to us? And it says in Romans 2 that your kindness leads to repentance. Would you not confront us with a frown or with folded arms, but with your loving kindness, even if it's an area where we need to be broken? Help us to love the truth and help, help us to be loving with that truth. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.